Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 48 Hours ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Need more true crime in your life? An Audible membership can solve that. Audible is the ultimate destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, you could choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Don't miss The Serial Killer's Apprentice by Katherine Ramsland and Tracy Allman. It follows the true story of how Houston's deadliest murder turned a kid into a killer in training. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 48 hours or text 48 hours to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 48 hours or text 48 hours to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days audible.com slash 48 hours. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Yeah, you mentioned you grew up in Greenwich and you were there in 75. The first thing people ask you is, did you know Martha Moxley? Bellhaven, Connecticut is a small, private community. It has big estates and almost no crime. But a 15-year-old girl has been brutally murdered there. Bellhaven, this was a virtually exclusive, very wealthy community in Greenwich, Connecticut, where murders just don't occur. My name's uh, Richard Burns, and I lived in Greenwich back then. That's the first time in 45 years we'd ever talked about it. My name is Tori Holland. I grew up in Belhaven, and in 1975, I was 15, along with Martha. She just had this beaming personality and her beautiful blonde hair. Smiled all the time. I just smiled, you know, it just made you feel like you were the center of, of, of the world. The Skakels lived across the street from the Moxleys. They were a family of all these boys, except for Julie. I went to school with them, and Michael was a year behind me, and Tommy was a year ahead of me. It was a lovely place to grow up. You've just felt safe. And that all changed after that night. The instrument used in the striking of the Moxley girl was a golf club, we know that. It's absolutely devastating. Nearly a quarter of a century would pass before police would make an arrest for the murder of Martha Moxley. 39-year-old Michael Skakel was charged with murder. Michael, did you kill her? I was shocked. It's like, Michael? I know Michael's innocent. 
the evidence is much stronger, suggesting that other people may have committed the crime. Bobby Kennedy Jr. is Michael's cousin, and he never believed for a minute Michael Skakel committed this crime. 27 years after the crime, Kennedy cousin Michael Skakel convicted in the murder of Martha Moxley. Michael Skagel spent 11 and a half years in prison until his conviction was overturned on appeal. An innocent man now goes free. But if Michael didn't kill Martha Moxley, then who did? This little girl, this cute little amazing girl, was murdered brutally by somebody. And I think it was somebody in that neighborhood. Could Martha's diary hold the clue? I believe all through this case, there's someone who's been keeping a secret. she was was murdered everything had changed you have no sense of peace you've, you've lost it all i think if she had said yes they tori holland and richard burns have waited decades to speak publicly about the event that forever marked their lives the death of their friend martha moxley my backyard sort of melded into her front yard. Both Tori and Martha were just 15 years old, living in Bellhaven, Connecticut. Martha's family had moved to the neighborhood a year earlier from California, and Martha wasted no time becoming the it girl. She was not a wallflower. She wanted to meet everybody. But everybody in Greenwich, you know, was very kind of reserved, Northeastern personalities. She was very um, an extrovert. She was the California girl of, of all of us. She was a joy to be around. You know, how can you kill someone like that? It still gets you. Yeah. It was the night before Halloween, October 30th, 1975, also known as Mischief Night. What is Mischief Night? Basically, you would throw toilet paper into the trees. Harmless fun. Martha headed across the street to hang out with her very wealthy neighbors, the Skakel family. The Skakels were cousins of the Kennedys. Rushton Skakel's sister, Ethel, had married Robert Kennedy in 1950. Rushton had inherited a fortune from the family's mining company. They were a very famous family. They just had a lot more attitude about, you know, they could do anything. Martha was friendly with the seven Skakel kids, spending time mostly with Michael, who was also 15, and his older brother, 17-year-old Tommy. On Mischief Night, Martha and two other friends met Michael at the Skakel house around 9 p.m. 
They all piled into a Lincoln like this, parked in the driveway. Michael and Martha are in the front seat of uh, the Skakel car. Reporter Len Levitt, now deceased, was interviewed in 2003. He spent more than 30 years investigating the night of Martha's death. Tommy comes and joins them. So the three of them are sitting in the front seat. Martha's in the middle between Tommy and Michael. They're listening to music. They were in the Lincoln until around 9.30 p.m. when two other Skagel brothers said they needed the car so they could drive their cousin, Jimmy Terrian, to his house to watch the U.S. premiere of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Michael told police he left with his brothers and cousin while Martha and her friends stayed behind with Tommy. What goes on between Martha and Tommy then is sort of playful, pushing back and forth with sexual overtones. At one point, uh, Tommy pushes Martha down and falls on top of her. And the friends are so embarrassed that they leave and go home, leaving Martha with Tommy. Martha never gets home. Martha's mother, Dorothy, spoke with 48 Hours in 2000. There's Martha. (laughs) And remembered that around 1 a.m. the next morning, she began calling Martha's friends and alerted the police. I was getting more worried and more worried. I mean, it just was not like her. When the sun came up and Martha still hadn't returned home, Dorothy walked over to the Skakel house. Michael answered the door. I'm Dorothy Moxley, and I live across the street, and I'm looking for my daughter, Martha. Do you know if Martha is here? No, Martha was not there. And he looked, he didn't look healthy. He looked, well, I actually think he looked hungover. Hours passed. It was now almost noon on Halloween. Tori was on her way to join the search when another friend discovered Martha's body under this tree towards the back of the Moxley property. And I could see Mrs. Moxley at the front door, and she's going... She didn't want me to come any further. But I could see the devastation with Mrs. Moxley's. Steve Carroll was among the first investigators from the Greenwich Police Department to walk up to Martha's body. It was a maniacal attack that should have stopped, but didn't. When Carol spoke with 48 Hours in 2000, he was still shaken by what he had seen. We didn't even know what color hair she had because it was all uh, blood red. And all of the blows or damage were all to her head. And then we could see a path that she had been dragged down in the high grass, down to where her final resting place, which was under the uh, pine tree. Investigators traced the trail of blood to the Moxley driveway. She had been bludgeoned right near the driveway because there was a huge pool of blood. There, they discovered a piece of the murder weapon, the shaft of a golf club. Former Hartford Current reporter and 48 Hours consultant, Lynn Tuohy. It was a Tony Penna six-iron golf club. And she was struck so violently 
that the shaft of the golf club shattered. And one portion of the shaft was uh, driven through her neck. Just a few hours later, while canvassing the Skakel property, police discovered a matching golf club that came from the same set as the six iron that was used to kill Martha. It came from a set owned by Ann Skakel, Michael's and Tommy's late mother. Police began taking a hard look at the Skakels, and they would find what sounded like tantalizing clues left by Martha herself in her diary. Go inside the decades-long investigation of Martha Moxley's murder at 48hours.com. A sense of safety is important to everyone, and that's why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe. It's an advanced security system that protects your entire home so you can rest easy. Simply Safe is completely customizable with advanced sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. You can have 24-7 professional home monitoring for less than $1 a day. So try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, you can return your system for a full refund. Plus, we're offering listeners 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Don't wait. Visit simplysafe.com slash 48 hours. That's simplysafe.com slash 48 hours. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. I was still in shock that she was gone, but that this had to be a beautiful tribute. To her to send her off. A few days after Martha's murder, on November 4th, 1975, about 500 people gathered for her funeral. And while family and friends mourned the teenager, investigators were learning more about Martha's relationship with Michael and Tommy Skakel. Do you remember either the Skakels having a crush on Martha? Well, it would be hard not to. I know I did. Martha's friends told police that Tommy wanted to date her, but his advances may not have always been welcomed. On September 12th, Martha wrote in her diary about going for ice cream with Michael and Tommy. Went driving in Tom's car, and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap. He kept putting his hand on my knee. And on October 4th, a little over three weeks before her murder, Martha wrote, I went to a party. Tom S. was being an ass. At the dance, he kept putting his arms around me and making moves. I did not know she was spending the time that she was spending with them. 
I did not hang around with them. They scared me a little bit. Why? What do you mean? Well, they're because they were very rambunctious. Two years earlier, the seven Skagel siblings lost their mom, Anne, to cancer. Their father, Rushton, struggled to parent them. On the night of Martha's death, he was away on a hunting trip. Their father traveled quite a bit. They were allowed to do whatever they'd like. They definitely got into a lot of trouble. There was a lot of partying going on in that house. I read that Michael Skakel had a drinking problem at age 13. Really? I would say that's true. And that drinking may have created conflict with Martha. In her diary, the month before her death, Martha wrote, Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real He kept telling me that I was leading Tom on. Michael jumps to conclusions. I really have to stop going over there. Tommy and Michael were both known to have very explosive tempers. The two of them were fierce rivals for anything, you know, from sports to affection, a girl's attention. Martha's? Possibly. It was daylight when Martha's body was found, but based on reports of neighborhood dogs barking the night before, investigators believed that Martha was killed sometime between 9.30 and 10 p.m., around the time she was thought to be at the Skakels. Remember, Michael told police that around 9.30, he had left to go to his cousin Jimmy Terrian's home and Martha had stayed behind with Tommy. Tommy's story is that he last sees her at 9.30, and he goes inside home to write a paper on Abraham Lincoln. The police later find out that no teacher at Tommy's school ever assigned this paper. Levitt says police initially considered Tommy a strong suspect, but it turns out that even if Tommy lied about writing that paper, he had an alibi witness. Tommy is seen again shortly after 10 o'clock with Ken Littleton. Ken Littleton was a new tutor who had just moved into the Skakel house that very day. He told police that Tommy was watching TV with him around 10 p.m. He noticed nothing unusual about Tommy, and that's significant because Martha had been murdered violently. How does Tommy do this? How does Tommy manage to beat her to death, move her body, clean himself up, compose himself so that Ken Littleton says of Tommy, I notice nothing about him out of the ordinary? No arrests were made. Months passed by, and with advice from Tommy's lawyer, Rushton Skakel stopped cooperating with police. He also fired Ken Littleton, whose life unraveled shortly after. He moved to Nantucket. He drank heavily, did drugs, committed crimes of petty larceny. Investigators honed in on the Skakel tutor, speculating that his downfall could be rooted in his involvement in Martha's murder. But there were problems with that theory. He's got no motive to kill Martha. He never knew Martha. The manner in which Martha is killed indicates that it was somebody who had a relationship with Martha. 
Authorities found no evidence to prove Littleton was involved. Years went by. Martha's murder became a cold case. There were no more leads to pursue. There was no new evidence. In 1991, the trial of another Kennedy cousin, William Kennedy Smith, who was charged with rape in Florida but acquitted, would open a new chapter in the Moxley case. There's an allegation, which is false, that William Kennedy Smith was at the Skakel house the night of the murder. That unfounded rumor and persistent press coverage kept the heat on the Greenwich Police Department and prompted them to reopen the investigation. Now they announce a reward and a hotline. This time, in an effort to clear his family name, Rushton Skakel hired his own team of investigators. Their findings became known as the Sutton Report, but the effort backfired because that report, for the first time, pointed a finger at another of Rushton's sons, Michael Skakel. Michael lied to the police. Michael told police that after watching Monty Python's Flying Circus at his cousin Jimmy Terrian's house, he came home around 11.30 p.m. and went straight to bed. But he told his dad's investigators another story. I remember, oh my God. If I tell anybody that I was out that night, they're going to say I did it. For 20 years, investigators seemed stymied in their effort to find Martha's killer. But all that changed in 1995, when someone leaked the Sutton report to the press. It was never supposed to see the light of day. The report was an eye-opener. Tommy admitted to his father's investigators that all those years ago, in 1975, he had lied to the police. Tommy told the Sutton investigators that he did not go into his house at 9.30. He stayed outside making out with Martha for 20 minutes. Mutual petting, semi-sexual encounter, and suddenly casts himself as being most likely the last person to see her alive. And not just the last person to see her alive, but who's with her at the time that investigators believe she may have been killed. Correct. But it wasn't just Tommy who changed his story, was it? No, Michael also changed his story. Remember, Michael told police that after watching Monty Python at his cousin's, he came back home around 11.30 p.m. and went straight to bed. The report was devastating to the Skakel family. But then he described a very different scenario to those private investigators. He's feeling horny. Around midnight, he's drunk, and he goes out, and he climbs a tree outside Martha's window, and he masturbates in the tree. In fact, in 1997, Michael even made a tape recording of that story while working on a book proposal for a tell-all autobiography. I pulled my pants out. I masturbated for 30 seconds in the tree, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I hope God nobody saw me. Then I woke up to Mrs. Moxley saying, Michael, have, have you seen Martha? I was like, oh my God, did they see me last night? 
Reports had also begun to circulate that Michael had actually confessed to Martha's murder. It was said to have happened while he was a student at Elan, a reform school that his father sent him to after a drunk driving incident when he was 17. One former Elan student, Gregory Coleman, recounted to a local news reporter what he says Michael told him back then. The first words he ever said to me uh, was, I'm gonna get away with murder, I'm a Kennedy. Coleman says Michael detailed what he did to Martha that night. He had made advances towards her and she rejected his advances and uh, quote unquote, that he drove uh, her skull in with a golf club. After hearing from Coleman and other former Elan students, state's attorney Jonathan Benedict convened an unusual and rarely used one-person grand jury to look at all the evidence and all the suspects in the case. After 18 months and more than 40 witnesses... Mr. Skagel, do you have anything to say? Michael, did you kill her? The grand jury indicted Michael Skakel for murder. I'm a little space no. 24 years after Martha's death, Michael was 41 years old when his trial began. And how big a story was that? It was huge. The scene outside was circus-like. Mr. Skakel, do you have anything to say? Anything to say, Mr. Skakel? All the national media was there. They had tents. They had lights. It's Michael's defense and his only defense is that he did not commit this crime. Michael Skako was being represented by a well-known local defense attorney, Mickey Sherman. As charismatic as they come, Mickey is no amateur when it comes to television. What's the motive for Michael Skako killing Martha Moxley? The only motive really is jealous rage over the attention she was showing Tommy Skakel. In fact, in that same book proposal for his autobiography, Michael wrote, I wanted her to be my girlfriend. I think Martha just rebuffed him. She could have been flirting with Tommy, and maybe that made him angry. On trial, Michael Skakel. At trial, prosecutor Jonathan Benedict began with discrediting Michael's alibi that he had gone for that ride to his cousin's house around the time of Martha's murder. Prosecutors called Skakel family friend Andrea Shakespeare, who had been at the Skakel house that night. Andrea Shakespeare is one of the witnesses who was certain that Mr. Skakel never took that alibi ride. Benedict put holes in Michael's alibi, but he later said Michael himself provided the most damaging evidence. The truth of the matter is that Michael Skagel couldn't keep his mouth shut for a quarter of a century. Benedict is referring to all those admissions Michael allegedly made to killing Martha, like the one to a long classmate, Gregory Coleman. Although Coleman had died from a drug overdose before the trial began, his testimony from an earlier hearing was read to the jury. That infuriated Michael's brother, Stephen. Greg Coleman was high on heroin, on methadone. He was doing 20 to 25 bags of heroin a day. 
It turns out that before trial, Coleman admitted to Michael's attorney that he was actually high on drugs when he testified before the grand jury. But the state put on nine other witnesses who told the jury that Michael implied he had killed Martha. And then, of course, there was Michael's own words from that tell-all book proposal. In closing arguments, Prosecutor Benedict played an edited excerpt for the jurors. Oh, my God. Did they see me last night? And I remember just having a feeling of panic. I think it very well may have been the linchpin. What do you mean by that? Driving the nail into the coffin of Michael Skakel in terms of a guilty verdict. It took the jury four days. Michael Skakel was convicted for Martha's murder. His sentence, 20 years to life. I know Michael Skakel, and I know he didn't commit the crime. Robert, can you talk with us? A few months after trial, Michael Skakel's cousin, Robert Kennedy Jr., accused the prosecutor of deliberately misrepresenting Michael's words in that closing argument. His tape-recorded words were used out of context by the prosecutor to imply that he was confessing to, to the crime. Like, oh my God, did they see me last night? Because here's what the prosecutor didn't play in court. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I hope God nobody saw me. Correspondent Leslie Stahl asked Benedict about it. In hearing this myself, yeah. without the, the preamble about masturbating to anybody, is that he's actually talking about murdering her. And, and isn't that really taking him out of context? No, I don't think so. I if think it's I a did fair, this on 48 hours, I'd yeah. be fired. I think it's a fair suggestion based upon the uh, evidence of the case. It appeared to anybody who looked at it that he was confessing, he was saying that he was panicked because he had committed this crime. And, um, and that was really the segment that everybody agrees ended up convicting Michael Skakel. And Robert Kennedy was determined to exonerate his cousin. Eight months after Michael Skakel was sent off to prison, Kennedy got a tip he believed would reveal Martha's real killers. Do you think the prosecutor's closing argument was fair? Chat now with the 48 Hours team on Facebook and Twitter. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. 
Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. To Robert Kennedy Jr., it was the break he had been hoping for. Kennedy got a tip that a former classmate of Michael Skakel, a man named Tony Bryant, was claiming he knew the identity of Martha Moxley's killers. So Kennedy and Michael's attorneys tracked Bryant down in Florida. Bryant has made a full confession of his involvement in that crime. Well, that night... This is Tony Bryant in 2003, videotaped by Michael Skakel's team. We decided to go up to Greenwich and hang out. He told them on the night of the murder, he had taken two friends, Adolf Hasbrook, also known as Al, and Burton Tinsley, to Bellhaven. So do you believe that they killed her? There's no doubt in my mind that they were involved. Bryant knew the two teens from New York and told Skakel's investigators that Hasbrook had become obsessed with Martha. I mean, loved her beautiful blonde hair. Bryant said that Hasbrook met Martha during previous trips to Bellhaven at a street fair and again at a dance. I'm trying to remember at one of the mixers and he got jealous of other guys coming up to her and talking to her. Tony claims Hasbrook complained to him saying, I don't understand why she's spending her time with those guys when she can be with me. On the night of the murder, Bryant says he was with Hasbrook and Tinsley when they all picked up golf clubs from the Skakel backyard. He claims that either Hasbrook or Tinsley bragged about wanting to hurt someone. I got my caveman club, right? And I'm gonna go grab somebody and pull them by hair and do what caveman do. Tony says he wanted no part of it, so he left Bellhaven. And then right after the murder, when you met up with both Adolf and Burr, they told you we got, we did it. We did it. We achieved our fantasy. Brian stated that while his friends never mentioned Martha Moxley by name, I knew who they were implying. It was, it was so obvious because, I mean, the next day, it was all over. I mean, it was everywhere. Armed with Tony Bryant's story, in 2005, Michael Skakel's attorneys filed an appeal asking for a new trial. Your Honor, the petition for new trial that we've filed on behalf of Michael Skakel claims newly discovered evidence which involves the allegations concerning Tony Bryant. But at a hearing to present the new evidence, Bryant refused to testify under oath Well, of course he's not going to do that because he admits that he brought the murderers to Greenwich because he could be charged with that crime. Kennedy says Brian wouldn't testify without immunity, so Skakel's attorneys played his video statement. But the judge wasn't persuaded and ruled against Michael Skakel. Michael uh, Skakel versus the state of Connecticut has been concluded. Despite the judge's ruling, Almost a decade later, in 2016, Robert Kennedy Jr. repeated Brian's allegations in his book, Framed. Using Martha's diary as evidence, Kennedy claims that three weeks before her murder, Martha wrote that she saw Tony and two strangers at a dance. But that's not quite accurate. In her entry, Martha doesn't mention Tony, and she never uses the word strangers. She writes, October 4th. Dear Diary, 
Tonight was the Sacred Heart Dance. When we walked in, some guy asked me to dance. Some other guy asked me. It turned out to be a slow dance. It was Stairway to Heaven. At the fast party, wouldn't even let go. I also danced with Dickie, Neil, and Peter Zemensky. A lot with Dickie. The Dickie she mentions is actually Richard Burns, who says he was with Martha much of that night. Seen Tony Bryant? Do you remember that at all? No. Did you ever meet Al Hasbrook? No. Or Burton Tinsley? No. Don't you think you would have remembered if she was dancing with someone else who seemed possessive of her? Uh, She didn't. She didn't. We danced the whole night. Al Hasbrook is innocent. Al Hasbrook declined to be interviewed, and we were unable to reach Burton Tinsley. But Hasbrook's attorney, Larry Schoenbach, describes the allegations as false and inflammatory. To coin a phrase, it's black versus white. Let's blame somebody else. It's the black guy. Let's blame him. Why not? Let's take the most vulnerable person in our society and accuse him. I am as certain as certain can be that neither had anything to do with this. Burton Tinsley and Al Hasbrook don't deny that they have been to Bellhaven on several occasions. But Schoenbach says there's no evidence that either one was in Bellhaven the night Martha was bludgeoned to death. Nobody saw Al Hasbrook. Nobody. They would have seen a young guy, a black man in a very, very white community, and a big guy. But nobody saw him because he wasn't there. Somebody would have seen strangers and recognized that they were strangers. Nobody did. And I just thought that was kind of a cheap shot. That they were going after this black kid from New York City. I mean, you know, really? I think it's, it's, they're trying to find a scapegoat. What's more, Hasbrook's attorney is baffled as to why anyone would believe Tony Bryant. Bryant has a criminal history that includes a 1993 conviction for armed robbery in California. We tried to reach him, but up until a few weeks ago, he was serving a seven-year sentence in a Florida prison for tax evasion. Still, Schoenbach says Kennedy irresponsibly perpetuates Bryant's allegations. With no facts and no evidence, he continues to put forth this lie as a way of trying to clear his cousin and, I guess, by extension, the Kennedy name. In November 2020, Kennedy insisted to us that Tony Bryant has no reason whatsoever to lie about Al Hasbrook and Burton Tinsley. When we pressed him about it, he got up from the interview chair. Do you have any regrets of pointing the finger at two people who've never been suspects? There's no physical evidence to tie them to the crime. But there is plenty. There's lots of evidence that ties them to the crime. You have their best friend who says that they confess to him. But in the end, it wouldn't be the words of Tony Bryant that changed everything for Michael Skakel. What do you make of Tony Bryant's account? Chat now with the 48 Hours team on Facebook and Twitter. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. 
Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Michael Skakel did not give up. On April 16, 2013, Skakel was back in court I do. With his attorney, Hubert Santos, and a new argument that that media-savvy defense attorney, Mickey Sherman, Mickey, Mickey. hired to defend Michael at his 2002 trial, he was advised of his rights. had botched the case. Mickey had me believing he was the real deal. He accused his former lawyer of being too chummy with the press. He said he was a media whore. Uh, everything about this trial is unique. You spent most of your time talking to the media, right? Is that a question? Yeah. No. And Skagel claimed that Sherman failed to focus on a more viable suspect in Moxley's murder, Michael's own brother, Tommy. You knew that Tommy Skagel was the last person to see Martha Moxley alive. I believe so. Sherman never presented evidence of Tommy's infamous temper. Did you know that he strangled a fellow classmate right in front of his teacher? I don't recall. Sherman also failed to convince the judge to allow Tommy to testify, which could have raised doubts about Michael's involvement. Did you try? He was going to invoke the Fifth Amendment no matter what we did. Perhaps most shocking, Sherman failed to call a critical witness who supported Michael's alibi that he was miles away the night Martha was murdered. That was Dennis Sorio, who was at the Terrian household the night they were all allegedly watching Monty Python's Flying Circus. Michael was allegedly there. Mickey Sherman, instead of doing that, instead of calling, never talked to that witness. But in 2013, Santos did. Was there anybody else at the home? The boys were there. Was Michael Skakel one of them? Michael was with them. He puts Michael Skakel at that house and has no motive to lie. He's not related to Michael Skakel. Skakel's team argued that these missed opportunities would have created reasonable doubt for the jury. And the judge agreed. Six months later, he overturned Skakel's conviction. Wednesday, a Connecticut judge granted the 53-year-old a new trial in the 1975 murder of Martha Moxley. After 11 and a half years in prison, Michael Skakel walked out of the courthouse no longer a convicted killer. An innocent man now goes free. But not for long. In 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court, being in a sharply divided decision, reinstates his conviction, saying the defense was adequate. Skakel, faced with returning to prison, 
then filed for reconsideration. And in 2018, with a new judge on the bench, the Connecticut Supreme Court reversed itself, now ruling that Skakel is entitled to a new trial. That trial would never happen. Looking at the evidence, Your Honor, looking at the, the state of the case, it is my belief that uh, the state cannot prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. On October 30th, 2020, the 45th anniversary of Martha Moxley's murder, the state of Connecticut announced it would not retry Michael Skakel. You know, Michael's going to walk around the rest of his life with that on his head, no matter whether or not it's been vacated by the court. Public opinion matters. As for his brother, Tommy... Years later, I ended up playing some golf with him a bunch of times. I mean, did you ever ask him point blank? I did. I, he, I didn't do it, and it ruined my life. This case has been a, a long and winding road, a very painful case emotionally for many people. For Dorothy Moxley, time has done little to ease her loss. Martha, my baby, will never have a life. This was devastating to the Moxley family. Dorothy, to this day, remains convinced Martha was killed by Michael Skakel. To lose a child is the worst thing in the world. And so, after almost half a century of questions and two families shattered, all that remains is one terrible truth. As we sit here today, no one has been convicted of Martha Moxley's murder. No. That's true. It's very frustrating. It's very upsetting. I think it's sad that she's not around to, you know, lived these 45 years. I think she would have done great things. I think she would have been a great mother. She was always a great friend. Lasting impressions of a life ended too soon. A life that, in Martha's own words, was full of hope. Dear Diary, today is the last day of 74. Boo-hoo. 74 has been one of the best years of my life. Well, hope 75 is as good. A young woman waiting for her wedding day. Her fiancé gunned down. Someone had a vendetta against Patrick. Did police uncover a plan for murder? This wasn't a random killing. It was an assassination. A new 48 Hours, Saturday on CBS. Prime members, you can listen to the 48 Hours podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Join me, 48 Hours Correspondent Erin Moriarty, on my podcast, My Life of Crime, as I take on true crime investigations like no other. This season, I'm looking into the secrets within families, cutting straight to the evidence and talking to the people directly involved. Enjoy My Life of Crime on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on Wondery Plus.